Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Premier Chelsea, your source for all things Premier League, but starting with Chelsea first. Coming into you on your speakers and headsets, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Jackie from Houston, and I have Rahul here from Connecticut. Hey, Rahul, how are you? I'm doing well, Jackie. How are you? Doing pretty good, my friend. I heard you had a relaxing weekend. I did. I spent the weekend with my in-laws, so it was good to see some family and get some good home-cooked food. That's always exciting. How is it when you spend your weekends there? Are you able to watch the Chelsea games? Yes, I am. And they, in fact, just bought a brand new OLED TV. So I was hooked for the whole weekend. (laughs) That's exciting. So you and I haven't done a podcast in a couple of days now, so we have a lot to cover. So I'm thinking maybe we just dive right into it, starting at Tottenham. What do you think? Let's do it. All right, so why don't you take us through the Tottenham team, and then we can go over it. Yeah, so Tottenham played a strong lineup. Harry Kane was still out, but Hugo Lloris in goal, Serge Aurier right back, Eric Dyer and Toby Alderweireld center backs, Ben Davies on left, uh, Musa Sissoko and Hoiberg in center midfield, with Hyunmin Son and Dombele and Bergwijn uh, right behind uh, Carlos Vinicius as their main striker. Yeah, and he seems to be a good player that hasn't really got a look in just yet. So it was exciting to see that he may have an opportunity in this game. Let's run through the Chelsea lineup really quickly with Mendy in goal. And Tuchel doesn't change his back three of Silva, Rudiger, and Aspilicueta. You've got now a slight change with that Reese James starts this game at right wing back. Marcos Alonso retains his spot at left wing back. And the two in the middle was Kovacic and Jorginho. We'll touch on them as we get through the game. And then he started up front with a three of Timo Werner leading the line with Mason Mount and Callum Hudson-Odoi playing in behind. And also quite a strong lineup there, depending on how we were going to structure ourselves against Tottenham. So you and I both predicted, you know, a decent game. We both predicted that we were going to have a decent result. I think it was 2-0 and 2-1, if I'm not mistaken. We were both confident the game ended 1-0 overall, with a penalty coming in from Jorginho in the 24th minute. But... Why don't we run through the game and kind of cover some of the, you know, the important things that happened? Yeah, let's do that. And like you said, it was a strong lineup. And I was personally happy to see him, you know, tweak it a little bit with Reese James playing out on the right versus Hudson-Odoi because he realized the threat Tottenham possessed on the wing, especially from Son. So that, that was a smart move from him. But overall, the game was good. We dominated that first half. We, like can't even remember, it was like 80 or 90% possession against Tottenham, Jose Mourinho's Tottenham, which is expected in a way because you know Tottenham are always just going to sit back. Uh, but we were all over them and, and won a penalty, which, you know, Eric Dyer should have known better. But in our case, it was a way for us to get a goal, which we weren't really creating too many chances from open play. So the penalty pre- presented a good opportunity for us to get the goal and Jorginho does very well no hop and skipping just step up run and place it in into the net yeah I was interested to see his different technique because as you know he had missed a couple of opportunities before that so him changing up the way he took his penalty I'm not sure if it had that in mind or he just felt different for that particular game we'll cover the next game where he returns back to his original hop but yeah definitely interesting to see but Another thing that did happen in that first half was Thiago Silva went down with an injury. And for anybody who didn't watch the game, it was pouring buckets out there. I mean, 
when the guy went to clear the ball, you could see how wet the field was. And I wonder if that had something to do with, with his injury over there. But as Rahul's covered it, there was a couple more opportunities in the first half, but nothing too notable to to report on. And really, the second half started really fast and quick from Chelsea. So why don't you take us through that, Rahul? Absolutely. So the second half started fast, but Tottenham were a little more positive in this half and we started to press us higher up the field then allows the space to play between our center backs into midfield and that created a few issues for us but nothing you know like I said Chelsea didn't create much in the first half neither did Tottenham in those first 20-25 minutes when they were, were looking good and doing better but we held on and I'm glad to see us even with Silva leaving the field Christensen comes in and, and us still maintaining that defensive shape and concentration and yes Spurs had a few opportunities in that second half where they absolutely should have scored but they didn't and we held on and we win the game yeah just to touch on what you said there a notable opportunity from Carlos Vinicius who we just talked about in the opening of this segment in the 86 minute he had a really tasty cross from Serge Aurier and honestly I think I hate to compare the lad but if that's Harry Kane there it's a goal and we come off spilling the points. But other than that, just a couple of players to touch on. Kovacic looks reborn underneath Tuchel. Very lively, making driving runs, nice tricks and flicks. I've said that before. I think maybe if he can add goals to his game, it will be amazing for us. Mount again, looking good, looking lively. And I need to commend Timo Werner because, again, he won the penalty, but he also is making those runs in behind non-stop. And I feel that if our midfield or our wing backs or even our center backs look up and see his runs and play him earlier, we might actually have an opportunity for him to get a decent, you know, opportunity on goals. So I'll be interested to see what Tuchel does with that as we go through the process of the next few games. Um, Matt, on the match for you, anybody that stood out? I think Mason Mount was dominant. He did well, energetic as always, and. He had a chance in that second half to put us two up and, and close out the game, but he didn't. But still, I think he did very well, as did the defense, and I would still give it to Mason Mount, though. Yeah, I'm on the same page. Maybe just a quick shout-out to Timo Warner, who, again, like I said, was a workhorse that entire game, and then Kovacic. So usually you and I spend some time here kind of analyzing some key points and key things that happened and kind of go over a debate. But really, the whole point of this game... There was not too much to talk about. It was as expected. Chelsea dominated. We should have scored a couple more goals. But because we have a second game to jump into, let's jump straight into Sheffield, talk about what happened there, and then we can have a couple of debate points or discussion points. So why don't you take us through the two lineups? Yeah, so Sheffield started a strong lineup, and I think they came out to match our system in a way that they had the three center backs, which, I mean, they do that from time to time. And so Aaron Ramsdale in goal, Basham, Egan, and Brian as their center backs, Bogle and Lowe as their wing backs, Norwood playing in that midfield defensive role kind of, and then Fleck and Lundstrom ahead of him. And they played two strikers up front. At least that's what it was on paper, but it obviously was fluid and, and moved things around. So Ollie Burke and McBurney played up top. And yeah, the- so, sorry, just a decent lineup there. And I, do like that they played two up top. I think it's something different. Obviously, like you said, it's fluid where they can kind of move things around and whatnot. But um, I think they did a good job in trying to match Chelsea and kind of push us back. And we'll cover more more of that in the game once you review 
the starting lineup for Chelsea. On the Chelsea side, Mendy back in goal. As expected, Espelicueta and Rudiger kept their places. Christensen, as we mentioned, who came in for Silva in the Tottenham game, filled in in, in this game as well. Reese James kept his spot on the right wing back. Ben Chilwell got a game on the left wing back, which was good to see. Kovacic, Jorginho in midfield. Timo Werner, Mount behind Olivier Giroud. The return of Giroud himself, right? Yeah. The game ended 2-1, so let's just dive right into it. I want to cover a few key points as we go through this. With the game starting off at a blazing pace, Within 30 seconds, that's right, 30 seconds of kickoff, Ollie Burke has a great pass from his partner, McBurney, but he hits the side netting. And I was already jumping up at that point, saying, how quickly can this happen? And of course, five minutes later, you've got a ball into Werner from Kovacic over the top. And this is the moment I'm hoping Werner can score. He chips it over the goalkeeper, but wonderful defending from Basham to get back and clear that off the line. And not necessarily off the line, but get in behind his goalkeeper and protect him. And on the 11th minute, when you think that things would finally slow down, it heats back up again. And Ben Chilwell, making his return, has a poor, poor, poor tackle on Basham. And you and I were ready to throw things at the screen, yell some profanity. But lucky for us, VAR comes in and judges it to be offside, and rightly so. And we were saved over there. And it was a real wake-up call within the first 10, 15 minutes of that game. And it doesn't stop there in the 18th minute, Mark Burney and... Um, Burke combine again for a half chance with a breakthrough on the 42nd minute. It's just getting on and on and on. Um, Chilwell finally gets an opportunity, plays the ball into Timo Werner, who's running behind. We just covered that in the previous game. And he does a wonderful cutback to Mason Mount, who's coming in almost Lampard style at the edge of the box and slots it into the bottom right-hand corner of the net which is great because it was coming against the run of play. Sheffield really controlled most of that game. I had a lot of chances. We haven't covered everything, but thoughts on that first half, Rahul? It was a tough half. And like you said, 30 seconds in, they were attacking and almost scored. It was their way of welcoming Tuchel to the Premier League. And I think this first half, and in fact, the whole game was a, a great way for Tuchel to realize the different dynamics in different ways that teams, you know, attack and create in the Premier League. And they had studied Chelsea to a T and seen what we were going to do, and they knew exactly where to attack us and the spaces to fill. So kudos to Sheffield, but, you know, Chelsea's quality told with the goals and and Mount, lovely finish, like you said, Lampard-esque, and I'm sure Lampard watching at home must have been proud. But... Mount's been very good, and that goal was a a great way to cap off some great performances. Yeah, valid point in the fact that I think Sheffield did study us to some degree because you could tell they had prepared. They were closing closing us down quickly. Then you had to play around the three at the back, which was something we hadn't seen in the first three games. So it was definitely something I was nervous about when we went into the second half. No real changes, and again, Sheffield start real strong. In the 54th minute... There is some miscommunication between Rudiger and Mendy, which you can kind of see Mendy putting his arm out and calling for the ball, but either he didn't talk clearly or loudly enough and Rudy decides to pass it back, but it ends up being a lovely finish in in our own net, which was a tough one to swallow. That was on the 54th minute. It's very, very difficult to see things like that when 
it's as simple as communication because if Mendy had shouted loud enough or Rudy had heard him or they looked at each other before anybody made a decision, it could have been totally avoided. But really, a minute later, another ball through Werner again running in on goal and he is dropped by the goalkeeper. And Kevin Friend and his assistant look at it for a split second, not more, and say, no penalty. I was screaming because it seemed to be quite a clear penalty, but I don't know if they were watching a different game or maybe I'm just a passionate Chelsea fan. It took a full two minutes for VAR to finally get into Kevin Friend's ear and said, hey, you need to go watch the screen which he did. The penalty was, of course, eventually awarded. And Jorginho, again, steps up. And here's where I'm going to tie the two games together between Sheffield and Tottenham. He reverts back to his old hop, skip, and a jump, but slots it into the net at the 57th minute. And really, from here on, Sheffield didn't give up. Honestly, at 2-1 down, they just kept going and going. And they had the better chances. And I dare say they were probably the better team as far as gameplay goes. Maybe Chelsea were more clinical as far as chances goes. The last thing that happened, the last kick of the game, 95th minute bicycle kick from Billy Sharp. And very, very proud of Mendy to stay alert the entire game, even until the 95th minute, and he comes up with a strong save. But wraps it up, and Chelsea take the three points home. That bicycle kick at the end, if that, that had gone in, I might have broken that new TV that I was watching the game on. <laughs> um, but no, you're right. Apart from that penalty and, and the the Werner flick around that one as the penalty, I don't think there was much that we created. And, and that's really a concern for me, and I'm sure we'll discuss it further. But, uh, you know, we're doing well. We're winning games. And I think this is the first time a Chelsea manager has been unbeaten in four games uh, for, since taking over. So it's looking good, but I really would like us to be a little more comfortable and clinical right. when we when we attack. We don't need to rely on penalties all the time. Yeah, so let's jump into some discussion points here because you brought up some amazing things we can talk about, which is, is this the end? And I hesitate to say it this way. Is this the end of the honeymoon period? Or is this more of Tuchel welcome to the Premier League where anybody can beat anybody? Tactics from the so-called lower boys, don't count them out. They really can perform. What are your thoughts on that? It's an interesting, you know, point. I mean, I don't think the honeymoon period is over yet. It's only been four games. He's done well so far. We can't deny that. Uh, I think Sheffield, we met them at a time where they're seeing some kind of resurgence. They've done well. They beat Manchester United. They only lost to City by one goal. And they've won a few games by coming back. I think of West Brom, they came back to one. So they have some confidence flowing through them. And we saw last season that they are a good team and they've got some good players. So with the confidence and with the quality in that squad, this was going to be a, d- a difficult game. I know I texted you before and I was like, we need to slaughter them. But that was more wishful thinking on my part. Yeah, so it jumps off to another point of we don't really kill games. And looking back at the last four games, of course, it's early days. So I don't mean to be this analytical, but it's part of what we talk about and kind of cover us through the process is the goal that came as an own goal from Rudiger, little mistakes like that. And yes, we didn't have many opportunities, but we do have some opportunities where we seem to be wasteful on the final pass. There are a couple of offsides for Chilwell, things like that. We're not clinical, I think is the word you used, we need to be killing off games. And is there something we need to do better to kill off games? Does it need to be shooting practice? Does it need to be a tweak in formation? 
do we need a new striker? Again, I'm a big Olivia Giroud fan. I'll touch on him in a minute, but wanted to see how you feel about that. I mean, I, I think all those things would help, you know, finishing and and training better on the, on the attacking side. But game time, it's always going to be difficult to execute and do it well against a Premier League team. This league is so difficult that, you know, teams sit deep, they defend for their lives. And if you're really going to score, it's going to have to be perfect or a deflection in, in some cases. But I think for us, we just need to continue doing what we're doing, which is the basics, doing them right. And the goals will come. We create enough chances to get more than two, three goals. It's really like we're talking about the, the execution and, and the finishing. But with Werner looking good, with Tammy and Giroud in the wings, I think that will all come with time. And we have Mount, who's scored. We have uh, Hudson Adoy, who's looking good. We have Pulisic, who who unfortunately had to miss this game for family reasons, and we hope everything is good with him at home. But he's to come back, Havertz to come back. So we have enough attacking talent. It's just a matter of, you know, playing these games and and executing and finishing better. So I want to roll it back to about a minute or two ago when you said doing the basics, because that's something that I have screamed about on this podcast, about doing the basics. And we continue to try to play out from the back, even when we're under pressure. So I know you saw Mendy's Johan Cruyff turn at some point during the game. It's not the first time he's done it. And I'm, I'm not here to discourage him as a player to do those things because, yes, we want to play out from the back. But it's going back to the same argument I've had for a year now where it's the new style of football. I accept it. I, to some degree, actually understand and like it because you keep possession but we play the ball back to our goalkeeper. It's not just Mendy. We've done it with Kepa as well in the past. And we have players barreling down on our goalkeeper. And the old-fashioned player in me, even though I was never professional, I have to admit that, is lump the ball out of there and reset. But we saw the same thing with Allison in the Manchester City game where he's been told or he's the type of goalkeeper that wants to play out from the back. And that ended horribly. So... Mendy's doing these things. He's encouraging, yes, we want to control the ball, but do you think that's going to get us into some hot water in the future? I think it will because Mendy isn't a player that is known to play you know, play out and play with his feet. Now, yeah, he's done two Johan Cruyff turns, but the third one might not work and, and the attacker might ping it and just <laughs> knock it into the net. So we've got to be a little bit smarter about that, but on the flip side, I'm good. I'm happy to see him doing that and feeling confident that he can do it because we've said previously that he's not that good with his feet. You know, he's not a, a ball playing goalkeeper. So him doing that and, and showing us that he can, you know, be a little quick and witty on the ball in the box as the last person on the ball gives me some confidence. But again, I, I don't want us to make it a habit of. Let's just keep pulling this turn off and we'll get ourselves out of trouble because at some point it won't work and then the confidence will be shot and right. one mistake will lead to another, like you said with Allison. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, honestly, with regards to the entire game, some of these things where we don't do the basics, for example, is we really allow Sheffield back into the game. And like I've said earlier, Sheffield, in my opinion, of course, other than scoring the goals, were the better side we really couldn't put our fall, foot through the ball. We were, really couldn't gain control like we did in, say, a Tottenham or a Wolves. 
where we had that 80-90 possession and, you know, control the game. And I'm almost wondering, and I'm going to make almost a controversial comment here, is one player that's supposed to help boss the midfield and control the midfield is Jorginho. And I know he's not everybody's cup of tea because he's supposed to be a regista or a playmaker where he's supposed to be passing balls over the top and controlling the pace of the game. But I think Sheffield, and this is just my opinion, I think Sheffield overran him. I think they went past him on so many opportunities where he just couldn't keep up. I think they bullied him off the ball. And I think even in his strength, which is looking for a pass, they closed him down so quickly he had no other option. So, okay, this is Sheffield United. They play differently. But Premier League clubs are watching. They are learning. They're going to understand. What does Jorginho offer us today as he stands and as his gameplay is? You know I'm not the biggest Jorginho fan. And it's a very good question because he doesn't offer us anything defensively. So when you're playing a back four and he's playing in that midfield, we're always going to be suspect to a quick counterattack or you know, him not getting back in time to do his defensive duties. But I think in a back three, some of those things get covered in that he, there is a center back helping him out or there's Kovacic helping him out. So I think that's what benefits him in this system. And I, I I think Tuchel really likes him and is going to continue playing him. Yeah, but I got to argue with you on this one because we can't play a formation. And I'm not saying we play the formation for Jorginho, of course, but we can't play a a formation because it benefits one player. I think the change in formation overall has benefited Chelsea. But if we're saying we're going to play a back three because it benefits Jorginho, okay, let's say we agree to that point. But still, it it hasn't given him, at least from my perspective, the freedom for him to play those balls over the top. I, I can think back to the 2019 season where he gave that wonderful ball to Tammy Abraham with one touch. I haven't seen him do that yet this season, and it may come, I may be wrong, but I'm still sitting here and waiting to see. Going forward, I, I see the positivity from a Kovacic and a Mount in the midfield area. Defensively, I see what Kante can bring to the squad, and even Kovacic to some degree. I'm just struggling to see what Jorginho is bringing in in either respects other than side-to-side play. It is a lot of side-to-side play. You're right. And I I have been on this, you know, we've said it on the podcast that I would love for him to play that ball faster at one time, put it in for for Werner, put it in for Dodson-Odoi, the the pacey guys in the team. But that's not what the manager is instructing him to do. Now, he may do it here and there, and it may come off, it may not. But I think... His benefit to this side is to hold on to possession, which is what we want to do, and dictate the play in terms of I'm going to pass it to Kovacic, I'm going to get it back, I'm going to lay it to Espelicueta, I'm going to lay it to Mount, whoever it is. And that way he helps dictate, I say dictate in quotes, because we're not really doing much with the ball, but we're holding on to it and avoiding the other team from hurting us, really. Um, And if he loses it on the defensive side, then... The manager and we know that there's four guys, at least three center backs and a midfielder there to make it up for his mistake. But yeah, you're right. I think what we expect from him is what we saw with Sesk. And I think our expectations were from Sesk were a lot different than they should be with Jorginho because that's not the role he's being asked to play by the manager. Fair enough. But you think if Kante is fully fit and healthy, who will be the middle two? for this particular formation. 
for this formation, I think he continues Kovacic and Jorginho. There's no point playing Conte because he can't do the job that Jorginho does in terms of, again, dictating, in quotes, the play like he's been doing. Conte is more energetic, going to burst up front and run and take a person with him or stay and intercept and clean up the mess. But I don't think he plays Conte in a in a three-person center back because it's just adding another defensive or, or, you know, not a very attacking option versus Jorginho, who's might pull off a quick pass, might pull off, you know, the assist to the assist. So it's, it's not as clear and he, it may not be as fancy as we want him, want him to be, but he does a job. And I think we're now what, like I saw a stat, it said something like 17 games unbeaten when Jorginho started and played the whole game. So Good stat to have if you're a Jorginho. No, I understand the point you're trying to make. But, you know, we even saw Conte come on and we played almost a 3-5-2 at some point. So I wonder if down the line he's going to switch it up to have a more tightly packed midfield. I don't know. But at the risk of arguing about Jorginho too long, I want to move on to another point and something that I watched throughout the first half versus the second half. And that was the front three. And I'm going to use my layman terms to describe the differences in the two front front threes here. So in the first half, we obviously started with Giroud leading the line, and I'm going to say leading the line with him being a point with Mason and Callum right behind him. Uh, did I get that wrong? I'm sorry. It's Mason and Werner right behind him. And when I say point, I think I believe that this shape of the three is almost like an arrow going through Giroud as the central focal point. And it can work, but I think against Sheffield, he almost got... It's tough to say this, but muscled out because their three center backs kind of just hovered around Giroud. I saw him come super deep at some point to try and get the ball, but then the other two guys were not making the runs for the flick off or whatever it may be. In the second half, Giroud comes on, uh, comes off, Callum comes on, and we change from this arrow point almost to a V. This is my layman explanation of what I witnessed and how this worked better in my opinion. When we switch to the V... Werner and Callum move out wider, splitting almost the three at the back, giving a ton of room for Mason to run into through the middle. And he makes these lung-busting runs. And so does Kovacic, actually. I saw him do it way more in the second half. And I want to see if you saw that. And if you did, what did you think about that difference? Was it something tactical that Tuchel has in mind where it's an arrow versus a a V? Because it's almost like a false nine giving Mason more opportunity or Pulisic or Callum, whoever's playing in that middle-ish role, while the other two split the defense apart and there's always cutbacks to you know, knock in the ball. You know what? I noticed that in the Tottenham game too, and I remember texting you saying, so we're currently playing with no striker while we're trying to go for a second goal. But at that same point, Mount made a run through, like you've just said, bursted through and almost scored. So I think it is a tactic, and it's a tactic that I think we employ while we're trying to hold on to a lead because it gives us more options wide so that they can drop back when we're defending. And if we're attacking, there's a person running through in the middle that, you know, like Mount is. And I think that's smart because it almost distracts the center backs of the other team and opens up space in the middle, which we've said for the longest time, we just cross balls in, cross balls in and hope someone knocks them in. So this is good to see that we're almost saying, 
we're going to distract you guys while one person goes through the middle and we're going to put it into him and let him do the, the business. So I think that's good and it's a smart tactic. It hasn't paid off just yet in terms of a goal, but you can see the idea and you can see the vision from Tuchel and the squad that we're going to do something different, which is what we've tried for, for a month or so. Yeah, I love that you brought up the point that we had continuously crossed the ball time and time again with Werner, for example, leading the line. Of course, when you have a Giroud or Tammy, it's excellent because they're taller and more physical. But again, it's a single striker. You're trying to cross an unlimited amount of crosses to hoping they'll get the head on one. So I love that we switch it up because you can find in our team, we have quicker and maybe smaller players. So this V switch up will, one, obviously distract the team, like you said, going from, hey, we're looking for a focal point to now, which one of the three do we keep our eyes on? Because two can run from behind and one's coming with a delayed run. So love that analysis of switching from crossing to this playing on the ground. And maybe it's the evolution of what Tuchel is trying to do, which is, hey, we have a second plan B or a second weapon in our arsenal, which we had called for under Lampard, which is if we're stuck at some point, what do we switch to? And I'm glad he switched and showed this and we both caught on to it. Absolutely. And you know what I was thinking while you were just saying that is, if Pulisic is fit and he does what Werner was doing on the left and Werner is the guy doing what Mount does, then it's almost taking it a level up because Werner's got the pace to just burst through and finish the hopefully finish the, the attack. Or there's a Havertz that we've got in our squad that can you know almost play as that second striker attacking midfielder, whatever you want to call it, when we switch over to that V, like you said. So we've got some options. It's just got to pay off once or twice, and then we'll start seeing it more often and, and getting a benefit out of it. Agreed. I think that's the whole point of this V almost. And again, we're not super technical analysts here trying to figure it out. It's just, I think with the players that we have currently in our squad, we have more of those pacey in you know short passes coming from deep with Havertz Mount, those kind of players. It might suit them long term. So quick question for you, man of the match for this game. Team of Werder. Yeah. <laughs> Hasn't he deserved it? He has. It's been rough six, seven weeks for him, but he's continued. And we've said this every time on this podcast. He says he doesn't give up and he hasn't given up and getting the penalty, getting an assist coming off, even though he was doing very well, he was picked up, I think a, a thigh injury or something. So he was having a great game. And what I really loved was at the end when they interviewed him, they asked him, you know, did you really want to take the penalty when Jorginho took it? And he said, you know, I need to score some normal goals first before I think about taking penalties. And that just shows you how humble and how down to earth and aware he is of the situation. I was going to bring up the exact same point. So I'm glad you beat me to it. It was a really touching moment to see that, one, he respects the hierarchy of what has been laid out with Jorginho being the penalty taker. But two, deep down, it shows me he has a determination in him to say, I don't need this penalty to get back onto form. I'm going through a rough patch, but just you watch. I'm going to make it back through. And we here at the TPC definitely support him. And I hope everybody else listening and all the Chelsea fans give him their best. I think he's going to turn out good. We're just going to keep our fingers crossed and just see what happens. We will. And... I saw a thing again today on Instagram. It was Drogba's first season, 41 games or so he played, and he scored, I think, 10 or 11 and assisted eight. And we know how that ended. So stick it out with Timo, our new number 11, and it will come through. Absolutely. So 
that was kind of the review of the games that we had. You know, they're coming thick and fast now, but there's also another review you need to do for us, Rahul, and that is the Chelsea women's squad. And usually in the last few podcasts, you and I have been jumping off our seats to talk about this one, but I was happy to give away this one to you because we've lost our winning streak, right? So why don't you take us through that? We have, but let me start off on some happier Please do. <laughs> news. So in the Conti Cup semifinal last week, we played West Ham and we won 6-0. A hat-trick from Harder that sent us through to the final for a second consecutive season where we'll be in the final of the Conti Cup and play Bristol City. And hoping that they win it and become back-to-back champions of the Conti Cup. Yeah, my fingers are crossed here that they do that. But what happened next? Yeah, so what happened next was unexpected, and that's the beauty of this game. Uh, Chelsea women's team lost 2-1 to Brighton in the Super League, which ends the team's unbeaten streak. We did mention that a few episodes ago and actually named our episode 22-32 and counting. So the streak ends at 33 games which is still a record in the league, so nothing to be you know distraught about, but one loss doesn't change that. We're still the record holders. Uh, and losses like these can happen when things don't go your way. It's a tough night. A lot of games have been played recently. It's almost similar to the men's Saturday, Wednesday, Sunday, Tuesday, whatever it is. So things can happen and plans don't get executed properly. But like I said, super proud of the team and squad and Emma Hayes. And they still sit top of the table with 32 points with a game less played. So the key will be how they bounce back. But I'm sure they'll come back against Arsenal in midweek and win. Yeah, just to echo your words, I don't think anybody can go on such a streak like the Chelsea women's team have. And very, very proud to have a squad like that playing for Chelsea. Very excited to see if they can come off of this and go on for another streak. Absolutely. So that wraps up our Chelsea review from this past week. Uh, But there was one game, Jackie, that we watched prior to the Chelsea men's game on Sunday, and that was Liverpool versus Manchester City. So you want to talk about that? Didn't you say you wanted to see some team slaughter another team earlier, and that was regards to Chelsea and Sheffield? But, well, did Manchester City live up to that expectation? My goodness. And honestly... Didn't expect it, me personally. I mean, I did think Manchester City would win the game, but not with the execution and the way that they went about it. The gameplay, the team play, playing from deep without a striker, just everything all around about them has been unbelievable. So, I mean, Phil Foden, I got to touch on this young man, 20 years old, he bossed that Liverpool team controlled every aspect of it. Raheem Sterling coming in from the left. Amazing against. And then I have to talk about this player because he's in my fantasy Premier League. And I always pronounce his name wrong, but Ilkay Gundogan has been incredible in filling the boots of Kevin De Bruyne with the passing and with the goal scoring that he's brought to the squad. And of course, the game ended up finishing 4-1. The only blemish on this performance was Ruben Diaz made maybe his first mistake all season in a very very poor tackle on Mohamed Salah who ended up scoring it of course but really Rahul other than that I don't think Liverpool had any opportunities whatsoever in the game now you and I can sit here and talk about how amazing Manchester City were and yes they absolutely were but I want you to talk a little bit about 
Allison, because two of the goals that came out from there were, in my opinion, directly the result of Allison trying to play out from the back. You mean Elisa Balaga? <laughs> <laughs> don't rope Kappa into this. <laughs> Another stat I saw, and I don't know how true it is, is that uh, Allison's made more mistakes than Kappa has in the last year. <laughs> He's also played more games. But yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, Allison. I mean, what what a game to you know pick to make those massive mistakes, and every time those mistakes were made, Man City made him pay and made right. Liverpool pay. And I don't know why Jurgen Klopp says he had cold feet because he was heavily involved in everything Liverpool did from building from the back and, and stopping City's attacks. But, hey, just another excuse in Klopp's crazy excuse briefcase. But I, I don't know. I You know, I was watching that and he makes the first mistake after he almost gave the ball gave the ball away prior to giving the ball away. And I don't know. It almost almost was like there was no Van Dyke, there was no center back or no leader in that defense to say, just boot it up, get it out of here. We'll, we'll reset, and then when it comes back, we'll, we'll deal with it. And he continued to try to play it out and got punished twice, and that really settled the game. And this is covering the exact same discussion we've had about Mendy in – Yes, you can play it from the back, but if it doesn't look like it's going to happen, boot it up. So communication definitely is an important thing to pay attention to in these particular games. But at the risk of hanging on to Manchester City, I think we have time to talk about one more big game that happened. And it's on the other side of Manchester. And it was Manchester versus Everton. Manchester United versus Everton. And that game ended up finishing 3-3 which is ridiculous because the final goal came in the last kick of the last second of the game with Dominic Calvin-Lewin equalizing that game, which is, to me, it's crazy because here we are. We started off this podcast beating up Manchester United about how poor they are, and then they shame us and come back and go on this incredible win, topping the Premier League, and we go, oh, Manchester United are going to win the Premier League, and here they are going through a blip and I don't know how better to say this but it was really really an exciting game goals from both sides coming in early Manchester United actually taking a 2-0 lead Dekure coming back scoring Rodriguez scoring again and when he's playing for Everton you know he's he's always deadly Scott McTominay has been amazing from midfield he seems to be like the the Manchester Zidane that they always wanted but again Kevin Lewin never never count him out I think he might be a real contender to really push Harry Kane. And that's very hard to say, but for that big number nine spot in the England squad. This was Everton's version of Istanbul. <laughs> <laughs> but kudos to them. Hey, two nailed down and being dominated in that first half, they came back and within, was it, 10 minutes, they were back at the level. And even when they went 3-2 down, they didn't give up. And I honestly didn't think they had it in them to to pull it back, but... The free kick comes in and Maguire plays all of Everton and Liverpool and everyone in Merseyside on and they <laughs> score. Um, and on Manchester side, I think it's just the curse of going top. We've seen it with us. We've seen it with Spurs. We've seen it with Liverpool. And now we're seeing it with Manchester United. When you go top, things suddenly don't go right and you start slipping down. But they've been doing well and they sit, I think, was it four points behind City right now? 
Manchester oh. United sit five points behind five. Manchester City with a game in hand for Manchester City. So wow. speaking of the curse of being on the top, let's review the league table really, really quickly. Manchester City sit in first with a game in hand over all their nearest rivals and five points clear of Manchester. I'm going to ask you a question now, but hold off to answer it. Is this Manchester City's title to lose at this point in the season? But before you answer that, second place, Manchester United, five points behind. Like I said, Leicester City still performing amazingly, sitting in third with 43 points. Liverpool in fourth with 40 points. And us truly making a deep run from, what were we, ninth, tenth a few weeks ago? Sitting in fifth with 39 points. So things are looking good if we win four or five games or string together some really good performances. We could be in and about the top four like we want to be, but it's not over yet. West Ham close, same points in sixth position. Everton have two games in hand and really could bounce back up. And after a a wonderful win against Manchester United, anything is possible. So we got to keep watching out for Everton. Tottenham are also not out. They have a game in hand and with 36 points. So quickly going to jump to the bottom of the table before I let you answer. Fulham in 18th with 15 points. West Brom Achavian in 19th with 12 points. And Sheffield United, although are still last, are now racking up 11 points on the board. So could get interesting if Burnley or Newcastle don't keep up their good form. But rolling back really quickly, is this Manchester City's title to lose at this point in the season? I will answer that, but I do want to let everyone know that Arsenal now sit in 11th. <laughs> They didn't make my radar as I was talking about the top and the bottom. Sorry, Arsenal fans. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is absolutely Manchester City's title to lose. They've been so, so good for the past seven, eight weeks. And I think they've now strung together 13 or 14 straight wins, which you know we wouldn't have said that because they've never won at Liverpool and we didn't think they would at least go, go there and win 4-1. But they did that and really what is going to stop them is themselves at this point if they decide to focus on the Champions League and, you know, take their foot off the gas here, which I don't think they will because Pep wants that title back and he lost it to Liverpool last season, but he wants it back. And that curse that I mentioned of top of the table doesn't seem to affect them. 100% agree with you, my friend. And we're at the point of the season where we've surpassed the halfway point. So this is a good time for Manchester City to be in form and maintain form. So like you said, unless they really lose focus on the old big ears, which they've all been chasing for years, I just don't see another way. Their squad is really coming together. They still have Kevin De Bruyne to come back and hopefully Aguero to come back. But other than that, they've just been immaculate. And the biggest thing I'm looking at the table is they've only conceded 14 goals. Yep. Which is... By far, yeah, by far the best in the top six, seven positions. And the next best I want to say from what I'm looking at is 22, and it's Tottenham Hotspur. Right. Incredible. That's that's the difference, and that's what's winning them, you know, or got them at least top of the table right now. Absolutely. All right, my friend, we've covered a lot of Premier League games. It was quite a few to, you know, squeeze into for this particular segment, but... We do have an exciting, magical FA Cup game coming up. Why don't you take us through that one? FA Cup fifth round, and it's Barnsley versus Chelsea. Uh, Our third away game, but this is in the FA Cup, and a good opportunity to make some changes to the lineup ahead of a busy schedule coming up. 
So Jackie, who do you think makes the first 11? So it's an opportunity, like you said, to bring some of the players out in the cold. And honestly, Frank Lampard did the same thing for the FA Cup, especially with no disrespect to lower opposition. So I think Kepa comes back in gold. Just based on the players we have and the formation we have, we're going to have to stick with Aspilicueta, Christensen, and maybe Zuma if he's fit. Otherwise, Rudiger comes back in. I bet Chelsea are kicking themselves for letting Tamori go on loan now with this new formation we're playing. So it's pretty much going to pick itself at this point with Thiago Silva being injured. As far as our wingbacks go, I think we're going to stick with Reese James. And then potentially, I think Chilwell will get another run out just because he got substituted in this last game. I think he switches it up a little bit with Kante and Jorginho anchoring that middle. And then I think he completely swaps out the front three because this is an opportunity for the front three that haven't had this much time to play with Hakim Ziyech and Kai Havertz playing behind Tammy Abraham. So I think in the previous game we played against Barnsley, which was early in this season, Kai Havertz himself scored a hat-trick. So it might be some memories and some good feelings he may have and this could end up being a good game to watch it's another hat trick incoming all right let's see (laughs) (laughs) and tammy scored a hat trick in the previous round against luton so right two hat tricks wouldn't be bad (laughs) but but jokes aside i think that's a good lineup and you're right eh? chelsea must be kicking themselves for letting tamori go because we could use him right now especially with so many games uh but that's not to be so i think it's a good lineup and for Chilwell, I was going to bring this up earlier, but I, I just figured I'd wait till now. Is he really needs to perform and put in a, a good performance? Nothing else, no assists, no goals. Just perform and show Tuchel that this change in management, this change in tactic, isn't affecting you because the last two games he's played, he's looked a little shaky. I think he's overthinking it, and may deep down just be concerned about his position with Alonso doing well and being the first choice. So you think Emerson might get a run-in in this particular game, or you think he's going to stick with Chilwell? I think he should stick with Chilwell, and, and for Chilwell, this should be an opportunity to show him what he can do. Yeah, we have three left backs, especially coming towards the summer. It might be interesting to see what happens with that. We don't need three left backs, so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Absolutely, and I hope some of the kids are involved. We spoke about them earlier in one of our FA Cup previews, but with the games coming up, I hope we wrap it up early and then can put some kids on and save some of the other guys for agreed so are you sticking with your six nil match prediction or do you have <laughs> something else you want to tell us <laughs> uh, i'm gonna go for a three nil i'll be happy with more than two goals okay that's a fair shot i think we're gonna take this one four nails so and not far off from you we should take it four nail we should be attacking and it's a good chance for some of these other players to put their name on the map and on tuchel's you know mind so All right. With that said, my friend, it is one of our favorite segments, which we have not done in a few good episodes here, and that is the Blast from the Past. Please take us through who you have selected for this week. Oh, I'm excited about this one. Uh, So I've picked a name that will be recognizable to a lot of people, but may also be like, oh, he's still around kind of moment. So it is Alexander Pato. The duck. <laughs> <laughs> the Brazilian wonder kid who 10 years ago, 11 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, broke in, onto the scene. Uh, really in Brazil where he started his youth career. But then when he signed for AC Milan in 2007, you know, was 
touted to be the next Ronaldo, was touted to be the next best thing out of Brazil. And he lived up to that expectation for a few years, won the Golden Boy Award in 2009 when he scored 18 goals in 42 games. And he was really leading the line for AC Milan and doing well. But for some reason, decided to return back to Brazil in 2013. Things weren't going as well as he thought they would be. Uh, So he returned back to Brazil with Corinthians. A year later, signed with Sao Paulo on a two-year loan deal, so still owned by Corinthians. Uh, Came back to Corinthians in 2016. And, you know, they didn't really want to play him. So they put him up for loan. And lo and behold, Chelsea go in and loan him. Welcome to Chelsea, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This was also the season when you know, we had a rough time the 2015-16 season. And so I think Chelsea took this as an opportunity, low risk. Let's bring in a young guy, see what he can do. And if it works out, then they'll sign him. Uh, so he came in in January, made his debut in April because he just wasn't playing enough and wasn't fit. So from a Chelsea point of view, not sure what they were thinking, but it happens. Low risk in this case. Uh, got a goal against Aston Villa on his debut. He came on as a substitute, scored a penalty, and that was his only one and only goal for Chelsea. He made one more appearance for them uh, in that season and then returned back to Brazil at the end of the, of the season and made a total of two appearances, scored one goal, got a great vacation in London for six months, and went back to Ch- uh, Brazil. I cannot believe he just played a couple of games for us. It it seemed like he was there for longer, but wow. He was competing with Diego Costa, Loic Remy, who at that point were a lot fitter, you know, had been playing Premier League and accustomed to the league and the team. So not surprised. And then he moved back to Brazil. Like I said, he got a loan move to Villarreal. So that Chelsea move did open a few doors in Europe for him. That didn't work out. He moved back to Brazil again, moved to China, back to Brazil. And then last year, he terminated his contract with uh, Sao Paulo. And at the age of 31, he's still pretty young, is a free agent and looking for a new club. Well, there's some clubs out there that might want to take a chance on the duck. Honestly, in his heyday, his early days with Milan, he was an unbelievable striker. I still remember one of the Champions League goals he scored within... I think it was 45 or 50 seconds where it was kickoff and he just blazed through. Was it Barcelona, if I'm not mistaken? And just killed it. You're right. You're right. Yeah, it's still one of those goals that's incredible till today. So hopefully he can turn his career around. Like you said, he's 31. He's still got maybe four or five good years left in him. Maybe not at the top, but absolutely it's some club that would take him. And I wish him all the best. I do too. So who have you got for us? So speaking of players that start high and finish low (laughs) no i just kid i wanted to bring back the african connection for this particular episode and not only did i want to bring back the african connection i wanted to stick with the chelsea connection as well and i have selected celestine baba yaro so if anybody remembers Celestine Babayaro, he was a Nigerian international left back, and he really started his career out at Anderlecht, which is a famous, famous club in Belgium for producing some of the most amazing talent that is littered across Europe today. And Chelsea paid 
a club record fee for a teenager at that time. This is 1997. We paid two and a quarter million pounds, which in today's day sounds like pennies, but it was a lot for a young kid coming from Belgium that we didn't know too much about. But he came in and made his debut in the UEFA Cup Winners' Cup against Slovan Bratislava. And he was also part of a team that smashed six in against Tottenham in December 1997, but unfortunately got injured in that game and that ruled him out for the rest of the season. And unfortunately for him, that season he missed out on winning the League Cup and the UEFA Cup Winners' Cup. Now, he did stay with us for seven years, but he really only managed to notch up 193 appearances as he faced staunch competition from uh, Graham Lasso. So I'm dropping another name here for anybody who's interested. And later on, Wayne Bridge, who a lot of people know had a decent career with Chelsea as well. He was then sold later on to Newcastle in January of 2005. Jose Mourinho came in, didn't really prefer him, and he was moved on. And he actually quickly became their first choice left back. He went on to make 68 appearances for Newcastle before injuries and losing form caused a mutual termination contract, actually, in December 2007. In January 2009, he actually signed an agreement with LA Galaxy to join the former Chelsea manager who actually brought him to Chelsea, Ruud Gullit, at LA Galaxy, which is incredible. Unfortunately, he never made an appearance for a professional appearance, I should say, for LA Galaxy because things turned sour pretty quickly. Baba Yara was not accustomed to life in the MLS. He expected the David Beckham treatment. He had poor accommodations when he first got there. He complained about sharing hotel rooms, which was unheard of coming from massive Premier League clubs. Uh, the MLS wasn't what it is today. It was a lot lower budget, so I think his expectations were mismatched what he wanted. There was also comments about him not training hard enough to get into the team. So between Rude Gullet and another name, which we've made on this podcast, in Alexi Lalas, who was president of the LA Galaxy back then, his contract was terminated. He couldn't find a club after that. He retired in July of 2010. And here's really what's unfortunate in the fall from grace. Like I said earlier, in 2011, he had to declare bankruptcy as well. So he's still around. He actually made a Chelsea appearance in 2018 in one of our charity matches. But he started really, really high and really, really well. But it didn't end so well. But again, an amazing player while we had him. A Nigerian international. Great connection there. And that is Celestine Babayaro. What a career and so many highs and lows and a sad ending. But again, he did it all and won some trophies along the way. So congratulations to him and good to see that he's still keeping in touch with the club. So that wraps it up, guys. Episode 24 is in the books. And thank you very much for listening. Please continue to subscribe, like and follow us. It's at the Premier Chelsea. Uh, Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. We've actually just crossed 600 followers on Instagram. So if you don't already follow us, go ahead and give us a follow. And as always, send us your feedback because we love to hear from you and we want to improve every episode, every day. Uh, And in the meantime, listen up and catch up on the other episodes. And we'll be back later this week to do a Barnsley review and a Newcastle preview. So until then, stay safe and up the chels.